Hey, futurists. If you enjoy thinking about the future as much as we do, we'd love to connect with you. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Hence the Future and on our website at HenceTheFuture.com. To Hence the Future podcast. I'm Justin Clark. And I'm Adam Cronin. And today we're discussing the future of nuclear. And Matamor, maybe we talk a little bit about why we're talking about nuclear and why it's relevant right now. Yeah, nuclear is a very relevant topic right now. It's been in the news a lot, both on the good side and the bad side. On the bad side, there's been a lot of news around aging nuclear reactors and nuclear facilities that are leaking radiation into the Pacific Ocean and into other areas. On the positive side, there have been all this talk about Gen 3 reactors, Gen 4 reactors, and all of the potentialities of what nuclear power could give us going forward into the future. So we thought it was really crucial that we discuss this topic on the podcast and give you guys an overview of What is the difference between Gen 1, Gen 2, Gen 3, Gen 4 reactors? What's the difference between fusion and fission? What are the arguments for and against nuclear power? And how does nuclear power compare to some of the other energy sources available to us? Mm. And another interesting thing about nuclear power is that both people on the liberal side and on the conservative side are in support of, at least to a large extent. Mm. Obviously not everyone is. But especially on the conservative side, which is typically thought of as not being forward thinking when it comes to climate change and pollution and clean energy, a lot of conservatives are very much in favor of nuclear power. You know, maybe it's because it's like kind of like a badass, like tough guy kind of energy (laughs) or I'm not quite sure why, but the conservatives love it and a lot of liberals love it, too. So Mm -hmm. nuclear is a awesome opportunity for us to come together liberals and conservatives and solve our problems with climate change Mm -hmm. Um, and before we get too much into all of the various pros and cons of nuclear power i think we should delve into what is actually happening in a nuclear reaction how are we able to extract energy from the nucleus of an atom which is so infinitesimally small and get all of this vast amounts of energy how is that possible yeah so so the what we think about typically with all nuclear reactors currently is nuclear fission which is essentially splitting apart a large atom like uranium Um, and essentially what will you know the high level summary is you split an atom some energy is released somehow which we'll talk about and then heat is generated, which then uh, heats up water, steam is generated, and then a turbine spins, and that generates electricity. Right. Um, And that's pretty much the same way that every other power source works, except for solar. You know, wind, hydropower, they all basically, coal, they all generate steam and spin a turbine. Mm -hmm. How are we able to trigger this process? What do we actually do, and what is the process that that happens. Yeah, so when you split a big atom, so I guess to back up a little bit, the universe put in a whole bunch of work to, or a whole bunch of energy into these large atoms. Like it's really 
hard and it takes a lot of energy to build up a atom like uranium. And that's kind of the starting point, is when you split apart something that took a lot of energy to make in the first place, when you mm -hmm. split it apart, some energy is released from that because right. there was so much energy that was put into the process of making it. And this gets back to Einstein's theory of general relativity where mass can be converted into energy. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to think of all atoms as being very tiny, but in the atomic world, some atoms are vastly larger than others. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like, a whole, you know, the Empire State Building versus an ant. Mm -hmm. So the a uranium-235 atom is very heavy. It's got a lot of mass. It's got, and yeah. when you break apart that mass, it releases an enormous amount of energy. Yeah. And basically what you're left with is two additional atoms that are not uranium after that. Because, you know, mm -hmm. if you remember from chemistry, like high school chemistry, the atom type is defined by the number of protons, electrons, and then neutrons as well. Right. And all, you know, there's a lot of particle physics that goes into this, but it's really interesting that there is a lot of energy that's released. But one misconception that I had before recording this is that a atom bomb or a nuclear bomb is essentially just one atom being split. Mm -hmm. But really what it is, is a chain reaction of atoms being split, like uranium, plutonium, like there's a lot of things that could be split in this cascade of events. And the bomb is the splitting of, I don't know how many, but a lot of atoms rather than just one atom right. at a time. And that's how we're able to generate energy on an ongoing basis through nuclear fission reactors. It can continuously generate energy, and as long as everything is working properly and all the safeguards are in place, that's a continuous energy source that we can depend on until the fuel rod or fuel pellet is spent, and then we add additional fuel pellets. Yeah, and maybe um, to kind of give a brief summary too, there's there's some talk about nuclear fusion, right? Um, which is the opposite of fission. So instead of splitting a large atom that releases energy you combine two small atoms mm -hmm. that uh, that also releases energy because you have two if you have let's say two hydrogen atoms and you combine those together there's a little there's some energy that's released in that process the same way that it's easier to split atoms at the when they're really big it's easier to combine atoms when they're really small mm -hmm. so basically and you can keep combining atoms until you hit iron and you can get fusion basically all the way until iron. And the same thing is true with nuclear fission, where you can keep splitting atoms until they uh, are iron. And then iron is just kind of this cool midpoint, I guess. And I found that really interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, and fusion is a big place where companies, private companies and government organizations are investing. There's a lot of money going into it. Uh, Transatomic is one startup, TAE is another startup, but the most progress is actually being made in China, which I thought was interesting. And China has the ability to sort of think more in the long term mm -hmm. and really plan and invest for their long term energy independence. And if you just look at the scale of how much energy China is going to need, I saw one estimate that said that every 10 days China would essentially need the equivalent of a new coal burning power plant just to Jeez. meet their growing energy demands. So a big 
a big subject of this podcast is going to be not how good is nuclear in a vacuum, but how good is nuclear compared to the alternatives? Because everything is a trade-off. We need energy. Mm-hmm. How does nuclear compare as an energy source as opposed to coal or as opposed to solar power or wind power? So maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, the the one thing that you need to, uh, that, you know, that people think about when they think nuclear is that it's super dangerous and that if you have so much uh, nuclear radiation and all these nuclear power plants that you're actually going to have nuclear radiation out in the world and this is you know this can cause leukemia this can cause cancers and i think people point to the chernobyl incident the fukushima incident uh three mile island all of these all of these things that kind of give off a a negative view of nuclear right and i have some really interesting data on that chernobyl Mm -hmm. in particular where they did studies of the level of radiation exposure for different people in different situations Mm -hmm. and they have one of those geiger counters which is how they're able to measure it and just by measuring someone who lives in a small town versus a big city someone who lives in a big city is exposed to 2.8% more radiation than someone who lives in a small town, just given the amount of pollution and cellular activity and just all the stuff that goes mm-hmm. on in the city. Passive smoking, like if you're just a cigarette smoker, you get 1.7% more radiation than someone who does not smoke. Wow. And if you are one of the people, one of the unlucky folks who has to actually be in Chernobyl to clean up the nuclear waste right after the disaster has happened, you only have 1% more exposure than someone who didn't have to clean up the Chernobyl waste. Really? Yeah. So it, so the level of radiation, people just assume it's like, you know, you're going to turn into the hills have eyes and start <laughs> mutating. and Yeah, but it's like... You basically have 2x the risk if you just smoke cigarettes than if you literally were in Chernobyl cleaning up the, the radioactive sludge off of the walls. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's crazy. Um, so what, what do you think are some of the other major oppositions to nuclear yeah, so that's, that's the big one that sticks in everyone's minds is the disasters. Mm-hmm. But if you actually look at the death toll per unit of energy created, nuclear is the lowest risk of all the energy sources. It's even lower than solar, even lower than wind and water, things that no one really has any obvious points against. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, more people will end up dying through something related to those clean energy sources than through nuclear. Mm -hmm. And there was one calculation done that by having 10% of our energy produced via clean nuclear energy, we've actually saved 1.8 million lives. And that's calculated based on how many people die from pollution each year, especially particulate pollution, like having like, mm-hmm. you know, little dust, you know, if you've ever seen pictures from, you know, New Delhi or, or, or Beijing or mm-hmm. anywhere really populated, 1.8 million more people would have died if that 10% of energy had been produced proportionally to how we produce the rest of the energy mm-hmm. as opposed to nuclear. So this idea that it's so much more dangerous than the other sources is actually a big misconception. Mm-hmm. So 
one of the other things too that I mean this really just points to a human bias that we will overweight these big incidents like Fukushima or like um, Chernobyl and underweight these these really common occurrences where one or two people die in a minor accident in an oil drilling plant or something along those lines or the amount of miners that die in coal mines every year and that's like the basis for a lot of republican campaigns are like (laughs) sending people back to the coal mines (laughs) like like that's gonna solve everyone's problems and the other thing that i find fascinating about nuclear is that it allows nature to make a comeback in a way that other energy sources don't like for instance if you're a coal-based energy country you're gonna have to use a lot of area your geographic area dig stuff up out of the ground have tractors and all of these things and if instead you have a nuclear power plant you can have all of nature on the outskirts of cities and still have all of the energy you need to build tall skyscrapers and Mm -hmm. it's like a it's a good way to live alongside nature and you can see that instantly if you look at pictures from the site of Chernobyl today or or Fukushima or some of these sites that have been abandoned. They're just completely overrun with <laughs> nature now and they've become tourist destinations because they look kind of like post-apocalyptic towns. But, you know, the animals there are doing great. They're not like growing, you know, a third eye on their on their head. And <laughs> there is some exposure like there is definitely risk for pregnant women children you know babies those are the people most at risk and they're actually able to measure the level of radiation exposure in their teeth interestingly like through baby teeth Hmm. but it still is not as bad as you would think i saw one study that found that after fukushima children and people who were immediately in the you know the red zone of exposure they only had about a 10 percent increased risk of cancer but I've seen other studies that have shown that it's more like closer to 0%. So it seems a little bit like somewhere between 0 and 10% additional cancer risk, or maybe mm-hmm. one, 1 to 10% additional risk, which is relatively low when, you know, we talked about the risk of if you're a smoker, if you live in a big city with particulate matter, even if you live somewhere that has lots of granite, that granite emits radiation, um, so radiation is a very naturally occurring phenomenon in our world, and it's it's useful to keep that in mind. Not all radiation is bad, but obviously too much radiation is bad, uh, and you you want to avoid whatever you whatever you can. I mean, just holding a cell phone near your head that emits radiation, or having it in your pocket, that's pretty dangerous. You know, like there's a lot of things that you can avoid in daily life that you know they're technically i wouldn't say radioactive but they emit some form of radiation and, right you know it's just it's just one of those things that it's you know we we don't really think about those types of things we don't think about the things we're exposed to on a daily basis but when there are the big events you know it's just really yeah. easy to to see those but one thing that i think would be interesting to talk about now is one of the other drawbacks of nuclear and that's the nuclear waste that's produced right um, in the reactors and everything you know everything that's generated in the fission process all of those uh, broken up atoms 
those tend to be super poisonous, super radioactive and dangerous uh, particles. And we need to do something with those particles. And the problem is the they stay dangerous for tens or hundreds of thousands of years. Right. So something needs to be done with the with this waste that is semi-permanent that hopefully doesn't need that much human oversight because right now if the human you know if all humans were to um you know disappear the waste in a lot of these facilities would eventually leak out because it requires energy to maintain the waste and uh, that's kind of an issue so maybe we talk about um the different types of waste disposal totally Um, yeah Right, so there's a couple options for nuclear waste disposal. When I was a high school kid and I learned about this, my initial thought was, oh, why don't we just shoot it into space, <laughs> right? Let the let the aliens and asteroids deal yeah. with it. Why, why do we have to keep it here on our precious Mother Earth? Mm-hmm. But the problem yeah. with that is that it takes so much energy, especially these giant barrels of radioactive water, to actually ship that into space and launch it out of our atmosphere would take more energy than the nuclear reaction would produce at least right now you know it might get a lot cheaper to ship things into space in the future but that's the case right now and Uh, i mean if something explodes it's not like shooting something into space is exactly safe at the moment right you could have you know radioactive water raining down on you yeah that, that wouldn't be a good situation yeah so another option is you can bury it deep in the ground where hopefully no one is ever going to see it. And ideally you're in a place that is pretty protected from seismic activity and Mm -hmm. tsunamis and any other sort of natural disasters, which is really difficult task. Almost everywhere has some level of seismic activities. There's not that many Mm -hmm. great spots to, you know, when we're talking about 10,000 years, that's a long time to be stable. And mm-hmm. the only country of all the countries that have nuclear reactors that has actually implemented a plan for this is Finland. Mm-hmm. And Finland, they happen to be positioned in a place on Earth that is very protected from seismic activity and tsunamis mm-hmm. and anything like that. And they also have a lot of high quality bedrock that they can dig deep into, put all of their waste in there, and then basically just fill out the entire, you know, once they've they've uh, put all their waste in there. They just fill it out with clay or, or some other material that will absorb any sort of shock waves. Mm-hmm. And, and then, also the radioactive waste if something happens. So, right. Yeah. And then they, they'll put warning signs for future humans to tell them that there's nothing interesting here and that they should just leave it alone. And oftentimes that includes hieroglyphics and you know <laughs> cool stuff like that. For the humans of the far future or yeah. some other species that makes it to Earth. Tell them not to go down there at all costs, basically. Right. So this is a good solution, but Finland's the only country to do this so far. Mm-hmm. All the other countries just have their nuclear waste stored on site. Oftentimes it's near water. A lot of the sites are now seeping through into the ocean or into the ground because they're not they're not properly being stored and a lot of the reactors are really old and they need to be updated there has not been a new nuclear reactor built since 1999 and there has not been a new reactor ordered since 1978 
So it has been some time, you know, more than 25 years for pretty much all of the reactors that are in existence today. And a lot of them are having issues. So right now, that's another reason it's so critical is that countries are going to have to make a decision. Are we going to update the current reactors with some new untested technology? Or are we going to retire these nuclear facilities and switch over to something like coal and oil or something like solar and wind? And that's why the debate seems to be so prevalent right now. Yeah, and, and the other thing too to keep in mind, one of the drawbacks of nuclear is the development cycles for a nuclear power plant is roughly 10 years or longer. Mm-hmm. It takes so long from the initial funding phase to actually completing the nuclear reactor that you need to have a very far-sighted um, and almost, I mean, within 10 years, a lot of thing, a lot of innovations can take place. So, so there needs to be some sort of way to maybe integrate some new innovations with a plant that was originally conceived five years ago. So there's, there's a lot of things that, that could be done there. Um, right. And you can't rapidly iterate like you can with other types of products. <laughs> yeah. You like know. software or something. Right. If you're testing out some new Facebook features, it's a relatively small risk to try some new feature out with a small sample set, see how it performs. If it breaks the system, you know, no one's going to die. It's just Facebook. And if it does great, then great. We'll, we'll spread it to all the other users on Facebook. But you obviously can't do that with nuclear tech. If you have a meltdown, then your funding is probably going to be pulled. Governments probably aren't mm-hmm. going to issue any uh, licenses. So there's very little room for error. And that's one of the reasons why there hasn't been as much innovation in this space. But there's so much potential. There's so many theoretical models for how we could create a much better fission reactor. And there are also, like we talked about, models for a new kind of fusion reactor. And it might be good to now just sort of state what the different generations of fission reactors are. And then maybe we can talk about why fusion reactors are even better than any fission reactor we could create. Or at least theoretically. Theoretically. If we we can get it working. So there's four generations. Gen 1, Gen 2, Gen 3, Gen 4. Gen 1 are the early prototypes of nuclear reactors. Basically the first proof of concept. And there are some of these in existence today, but the vast majority of active nuclear facilities are Gen 2. And these are your classic light water reactors, you know, where Homer Simpson worked. This is like those big nuclear coolant towers. And it's a very affordable and relatively easy way to generate nuclear power because all you really need is water and this big facility and these nuclear uh, fuel rods. Mm -hmm. But it's not that great from a scientific perspective because there is the risk of if, let's say, the power goes out, which happened in Fukushima because there was a tsunami, and then the electricity would stop cooling the water. And when the water stops being cold, then it essentially boils up because of all the heat and energy from the nuclear reaction. Or that the it waste. All the, all the waste, yeah. and that it basically turns into this steam. And, you know, if anyone in, knows, as, as water, you know, as ice becomes water and steam, it, like, expands, mm-hmm. and it can basically just, you know, blow the facility up if it's not 
contained or at the very least release a lot of toxic waste into the atmosphere and into the surrounding area yeah i mean if if you have these these barrels full of toxic waste that are being held in water to kind of cool them down and contain the nuclear waste from spreading and that water boils and you have some of the container exposed the exposed container will start to release radiation into the environment and that's exactly what happened with fukushima mm-hmm. if you have a tsunami that cuts the power that won't cool the water anymore and then eventually you have you know the water boils and then some is um just a little bit of the top of the containers let's say are exposed that's enough to be pretty dangerous to the people in the facility and in a pretty close proximity to that um so that's one of the issues too is you need you need to always have power to these places and that that's a security risk right that's um you know and then for gen two for gen two but for for gen three so gen three are we have these designs today they work theoretically, but they haven't yet been implemented. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these are improvements upon Gen 2 without it being fundamentally different. Some of them are fundamentally different, but there, for instance, one example of a Gen 3 reactor is similar to the light water reactor, but instead of using fuel rods that aren't that protected, it uses fuel pellets, which are much more protected, and it eliminates the risk of there being a runaway chain reaction that would then re- result in some sort of a meltdown. So, mm-hmm. you know, one metaphor I've heard is it's like a Gen 2 reactor is like if you had a hand grenade and you wrapped it in bubble wrap and then you kept wrapping in bubble wrap for like a mile in every direction. A Gen 3 reactor would be the same thing, but the hand grenade is encased inside of like a titanium sphere. So even if the bubble wrap pops, there still is that protection uh, in the most inner layer. And, you know, there's obviously so much technical specifics around this, so we're not going to get too much into all the various types of Gen 3 reactors. But it's worth noting that a lot of the safety risks that people associate with nuclear power would not be nearly as prevalent in Gen 3 and Mm -hmm. especially not in Gen 4, which is even more futuristic types of designs that could completely eliminate safety and also could eliminate a lot of the waste so for instance there is one thorium reactor concept which uses a different type of material rather than uranium it uses thorium and thorium has two really big benefits one is that it cannot easily be turned into a nuclear bomb unlike uranium and the second benefit is that it doesn't stay radioactive for nearly as long so typically radioactive waste stays dangerous for 10,000 years or more whereas with a thorium reactor it's only a few hundred years Hmm. so that's that's one potentiality and then the whole other side is fusion reactors so maybe you want to talk a little bit about I mean we already said the broad the broad swath of what fusion does but maybe we talk about why it's so difficult and (laughs) right yeah so so fusion is something that happens at the core of stars or mm. in stars, because these stars are these cool little power plants or these cool um, manufacturing plants of the universe that just fuse tiny little particles together like hydrogen and create more complex atoms like uranium or like helium or, you know, all these other atoms are kind of built from these 
fusion reactions. And the nice thing about the core of the sun is one, it's super hot, which you need for fusion, and two, there's a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. And the nice thing about having both of those things, when something when you have really high pressure, you don't need as high of a temperature to do this fusion reaction. Um, so the core of the sun is roughly two million degrees Celsius. And uh, there's a lot of gravity, obviously, it's a massive um, ball. But on Earth, we don't have nearly the pressure that is at the core of the sun. So if we want to achieve fusion on Earth, we need way hotter temperatures than the core of the sun because um, we need to compensate for the lack of pressure. Because mm-hmm. the sun is so massive that all of that mass all the gravity, yeah. just pushes it inwards and creates additional pressure, additional heat. Yeah, and if you just think about how much pressure is... If you've seen those videos of like a tin can a mile underneath the ocean, there's a lot more pressure just underneath the ocean, mm-hmm. which, you know, relative to the core of the sun is tiny. Right. So it, like it's it's almost inconceivable amounts of pressure in the at the core of the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, it turns out that in China, they were actually able to achieve fusion, I think, on a super small scale. Right. Um, but they needed to get their reactor to roughly 13 million degrees Celsius. So six and a half times the heat of the core of the sun. Wow. Um, So yeah, I mean, it's possible, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that we need first before we can achieve fusion and the whole temperature pressure uh, right. situation is kind of the one or it's so one the, of the yeah so the temperature problems. pressure is one main problem and then the mm-hmm. other one is the materials themselves so theoretically you can basically get a cup of water mm-hmm. and use that as fuel in a fusion reactor to generate the equivalent energy output as an entire barrel of oil and have almost no pollution some you know a little bit extra helium in the atmosphere but not that much not nearly as much pollution as you would get with mm-hmm. any other form of, of energy reaction. Mm-hmm. But this can't just be any cup of water. It has to include uh, deuterium and tritium. And deuterium is commonly commonplace in our ocean, so that's easy. But tritium is not. Tritium is r- really rare. Most of what exists on Earth is already being used in nuclear bombs. So it's really expensive and really hard to get. Mm-hmm. However, we do know of one good source for tritium and that is on the moon. And because the moon doesn't have an atmosphere like Earth to protect it, it gets a lot of the, a lot of uh, solar dust accumulates on the surface of the moon, and that mm-hmm. solar dust is rich in tritium. So we could imagine a future scenario where the, there's a moon base, and on this moon base, we basically mine tritium, we send it back to Earth, we combine it with you know, just a cup of water from our ocean mm-hmm. and with deuterium and, and uh, H2O. <laughs> and then you are able to generate near limitless energy with yeah. no side effects, basically no side effects. And it would yeah. be free, clean energy to power human civilization for the next however long we're yeah. <laughs> around before we screw things up again. But Yeah, I mean, fusion could be a complete game changer. And the cool thing too 
between um, the reason that one of the reasons that fusion is really nice compared to fission aside from you know way less toxic waste is kind of like you were saying the resources for doing nuclear fusion are uranium and some of these super rare elements or sort of rare elements and mm -hmm. if if there was the nuclear pr proliferation we would need to mine a lot of uranium right um or you know thorium all these other all these other things but when we have if we can you know maybe companies like planetary resources i think that's a peter diamandis company that's trying to mine asteroids and do some sort of uh, space exploration and mining and we can get those resources relatively um easily like that's like you said that's so uh limitless we can add fusion reactors to basically everything if we want to become a spacefaring species we want to probably have fusion reactors in our starships right um, so everyone is in, in agreement that if we can get fusion reactors it is total game changer and will be the best energy source that we have that we have uncovered thus far I think an important question is, while we're doing these experiments to achieve fusion reactions that are economically viable, should we replace our currently energy sources with fission reactors? Because there are nuclear reactors that exist today that could be a great alternative to other energy sources. The question is, should we implement the current reactors of today while we're working on creating these new, even better versions? And one of the biggest arguments that I've seen in favor of us accepting the nuclear energy that we have today is that with nuclear fission, we're able to at least control where the waste product goes. It's in these barrels of, of radioactive water or in other reactors. You know, it's not water, it's some other type, but essentially we're able to put it wherever we want. We don't always do a good job. Sometimes a tsunami comes and washes it into the ocean. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we do do a good job, like Finland, and we put it down there, and it's totally safe and doesn't isn't expose us to anything bad. Mm -hmm. And that's totally different than when you look at something like coal-burning power plants or oil-burning or natural mm -hmm. gas, because that's getting released directly into the atmosphere. It increases carbon emissions, which mm -hmm. accelerates global warming, and it increases the amount of particulates in the air, which leads to lung cancer and other types of cancer and decreases fertility and all of these things. So it's, it's essentially a decision between, okay, there's this bad stuff that we can decide where to put it, or there's this bad stuff that just automatically goes into the atmosphere. And so it seems like we should be willing to do the one that we have more control over, even if it seems scarier because it's like, something we can actually see rather than something yeah. that just disappears into the sky. Yeah, and, and I just think it's really important to, to um, highlight the fact that this the nuclear is a way to bridge the gap between you know the, the different parties. So it's one of the arguments against like solar and some of these other clean resources, is that they're just not very energy dense. Like you can't mm -hmm. get that much energy out of, like per unit of space of solar or wind. You don't get that much energy. Hydro is another story, but there's also limited um, resources in terms of, you know, rivers that can generate enough hydroelectric power. Um, right. But 
with nuclear, it actually is a dense form of clean energy. And like you said, we can we can have control over what's going on. And I think that just having control and having these mechanisms in place, because the U.S. puts unreasonable amounts of money, well, actually pretty reasonable, but it's a lot of money into the safety of nuclear. Hmm. Um, so we just need to, I would say that it's probably a really good idea to <laughs> pursue this. Yeah, um, I would in, agree. In, in, um, as opposed to the oil and the other dirty energy sources. One of the biggest misconceptions that I had when I was thinking about alternate energy sources is I thought, well, so, well solar is obviously the best because it comes from the sun. There's no pollution to speak of. And you can just store this in batteries and use it whenever you need to. But there, this is not the case, actually. The reality of solar is that our ability to store energy collected from solar is not that good yet. Mm-hmm. It's not like we can, we can take all the sunlight in and then store it for days or weeks or years. It's actually, I saw one stat that if we were to store all of the energy from solar, we can only store it for like 23 minutes at a time yeah. before it just dissipates with the, you know, the laws of thermodynamics and everything. Mm-hmm. So that's one issue with solar. The other big issue with solar is that there's no good way to recycle the solar panels, which ha- do have a lifetime, a lifespan. Like they're mm-hmm. not, you can't just use them forever. So for these two reasons, Solar is not something that can solve all of our problems today. It could become much more viable once the batteries get a lot better at keeping the energy stored because then we could put up Mm -hmm. solar panels in places like the Arizona desert where there's lots of sun, store it, and then divert it to wherever is needed. But right now, there's just not enough. The battery powers aren't good enough for Mm -hmm. us to do that. Yeah, I mean, the energy markets are really interesting because since all of the major energy sources are um, these steam-powered uh, generators or turbine-generated gener- uh, turbine electricity, the power is almost always generated on demand to some extent. Right. And there's there are always these big plants that kind of distribute to smaller... I think local, I, I don't know the, uh, the terminology exactly, but there's just like this big network of electro, um, electricity uh, distribution and it's mostly generated on the spot right when it's needed. Right. And that's one of the things that we can't get around until batteries are way better. And battery innovation has been really slow um, relative to all the other types of innovation that have been going on. So... I, it's not something worth holding your breath over um, because there's still probably a lot of time between now and super efficient batteries. Like we might even achieve fusion before we can achieve a battery that has 10x the capacity of current um, batteries. Yeah. And a good example of that is if you look at Germany and France, because Germany very much bought into this idea of clean energy in the 60s and 70s and 80s, where it was all about switching to solar, switching to wind, to water, and they strategically decided not to pursue nuclear. And they decided to not invest in new nuclear power plants, but instead invest in new clean energy power plants. On the flip side, France 
went fully into nuclear and they now have 93% of all their energy is generated via nuclear fission reactors. France is the largest net exporter of energy in the EU and they have very low emissions, very low levels of pollution and the cost of their energy is very low. It's about half what it was before they started implementing nuclear energy. And then if you look at Germany, which most people would think, oh, they did the right thing. They didn't go for scary nuclear. They went with nice, clean energy like solar, wind, and water. Well, Germany actually has much greater energy costs, and they have more pollution. So if you look at these two countries as sort of a model for different directions that countries could take, it seems like France made the right decision. Now, France hasn't had major meltdowns or anything like that, so I guess there's always the chance of some catastrophe. But if things are done in a controlled setting, and like we said, a lot of times the disasters aren't as bad as they seem to be. It's just that we have this perception of if it's dramatic and it's cinematic, mm-hmm. it feels much scarier than something that's very you know mundane and everyday, like pollution going into the air. Mm-hmm then it does seem like the countries that embrace nuclear, even the nuclear technology that exists today that isn't perfect, will be better positioned for the future and more independent and le- you know, less dependent on other, mm-hmm. you know, buying oil from Saudi Arabia and all the other energy independent, uh, dependencies that can you know, cripple a country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just having um, this model of France give puts us at a huge advantage like just just allowing them to show us that this is a feasible option it means that we don't have to do i mean we still have to do due diligence but we kind of have a model and the u.s and these other countries can follow france uh without as much hesitation because they know that it's been successful Um, and that's that's one of the big things too when we talk about any other innovative a policy like a UBI or something along those lines. Um, just having some sort of model country is super important for uh, making these decisions on a global scale. Yeah, and it might be good to talk a little bit about the one elephant in the room that we haven't addressed, which can then lead us into the future scenarios, mm-hmm. and that is nuclear weapons technology. Because a lot of these reactors, you know, countries will start saying, hey, we just want clean nuclear energy, sell us some power plants and the technology, and we want to be part of the cool kids club. And then they'll, you know, the U.S. will sell them reactors, and then they covertly develop nuclear weapons technology. This has Mm -hmm. happened with five countries since the Cold War, including India and Pakistan, which you know, there's oh, that's one of the biggest chances of nuclear war breaking out is between those two countries just because of their history. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we think about the risk of nuclear weapons, I think it's interesting to think about how bad it could possibly get, what it would take to delve us into a nuclear winter, and if Earth or humanity could ever recover. So maybe that's a good place to take a quick break and then get into the worst case scenario. What do you think is the worst case scenario? Worst case scenario. My worst case scenario is what would truly be the worst if we were to explode all of the nuclear bombs in existence today. 
So there are currently 15,000 nuclear warheads on Earth. 14,000 of them exist between the U.S. and Russia, and the remaining 1,000 are with all the other nuclear countries. If we were to, we were to drop these 15,000 nuclear bombs on all the biggest cities, we could wipe out all of the major cities, and we would still have 1,500 bombs left over. And so with that, we could also wipe out some of the people living in the bigger towns and whatever the next biggest populated areas are. Mm -hmm. But the net result of this, even when you take into account radiation, nuclear fallout, that kind of thing, only half of the world's population would be eliminated. And that was not as bad as I had expected when I went into this. I figured that we could destroy humanity if all the nukes were blown up. But it's... You know, it's reassuring that we can't, <laughs> at least right now. Yeah. And to take it one step further, if we were to mine all of the uranium-235 that exists on planet Earth and turn all of that into warheads and then pile up all these warheads and explode it all at once, what would happen then? And it turns out, in this case, there would be enough nuclear weapons to bring us into a nuclear winter. And so that would mean that all large animals would be extinct, including humans. And the explosion would create so much smoke and so much dust and particulate matter that it would create a blanket over all of Earth. And that blanket would prevent any sunlight or heat from getting in. So that's why it would basically be a dark, frigid place, you know, hence the future... Hence the, the name, um, <laughs> but hence the, hence the name nuclear winter, yeah. right? And this nuclear winter would be pretty terrible for, for us, but the other life forms on earth would be more or less fine at mm -hmm. the micro level, especially. So cockroaches mm -hmm. can withstand 40 X the amount of radiation as humans can. So they would be fine probably. Mm hmm wasps one certain type of wasp can withstand 9x the amount of radiation as cockroaches and then there are even bacteria that flourish in an environment with radiation and radioactive nuclear waste yeah they literally digest nuclear <laughs> molecules yeah that's their that's their food that's their in and out burger <laughs> so mother earth would be fine in the worst case but humanity would not and all the animals that we care about that you would decorate your baby's crib <laughs> with like those animals would all be gone yeah so it's not as bad as i had thought when i was originally planning the scenario out for earth but obviously it would be terrible for humans and it's very similar to the climate change issue where it's not about saving the planet the planet's going to be fine it's about saving ourselves and the other animals that we care about Mm -hmm. and like the this current peak of life i guess because that's one of the things that has come up several times on the podcast is earth will be fine like there yeah. there are very few things that will destroy earth and life on earth forever right and you know a couple of those things are the earth or the sun exploding or some massive solar. which which will happen at yeah, some point, in like but billions of years, but yeah. or a black hole is another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's like a few cosmic things that can really wipe us out, but I stuff mean, that we can do yeah, is very that, limited. Yeah, and and it's just really it's almost refreshing to at least know that 
you know, yeah. if, as depressing as it is sometimes to see how much life is being lost, there will be a time in the future if, even if humanity ceases to exist, that life will flourish again. Right. Um, so that's, you know, that's and a it, little bit of silver lining of the worst case. <laughs> yeah. And another example of that is the biggest, baddest bomb that we've created ever, which is the Tsar bomb, which mm-hmm. is like 10,000 Hiroshima bombs. If we exploded that at the bottom of the ocean, it would would not do much. It would mm-hmm. expand to a kilometer in diameter, which is far less than the diameter of something exploded in the air. Mm-hmm. And then basically the pressure of the water would then just compress make the explosion. <laughs> yeah, it would, it would compress the explosion and it would kill whatever fish were nearby. Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't be all that bad. I mean, there would be radiation. You wouldn't want to go fishing there anytime soon, but it wouldn't be terrible. And yeah. most of the rain would just rain down on the ocean. Um, I suppose some of the clouds could push the rain, and then you could have some nuclear fallout on nearby islands. Yeah. But it, would the would the nuclear radiation even make its way to the surface? Well, the the from the video I was watching, apparently the water would evaporate, and the water in that oh, direct area okay. so would like be bubble up into yeah, and sea. then it would rain down. Um, but you know, the Earth is. Re- pretty big and it's pretty good at, at moderating its various uh you know temperatures and inputs and different mm-hmm. concentrations of different materials so it would be hard for us to seriously screw things up on earth for earth in the long term but it's fairly easy for us to screw it up for ourselves yeah. because humans need very specific sort of um environment to mm-hmm. to thrive And I guess one other thing I'll say just to tie up my worst case scenario is that I could see nuclear technology becoming a driver of inequality in the future. It doesn't have to be, but it could be, meaning China is currently the furthest along in developing fusion reactor technology. If they achieve it and it's more economically viable than any other energy source, then they could give that or, you know, sell that technology to all other countries that would need it, which would be great for all of humanity, or they could use it as a way to consolidate their own power and further their plans to have sort of a surveillance state world where everyone's more or less in line with what their objectives are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously that's not something that people in the West are too are too <laughs> keen about. So that that is one potential worst case that I could see as being something we maybe want to worry about or at least keep an eye on. And then as far as like, what are things that are more likely worst case things that could happen? I think contaminating our fresh water would be a really bad scenario where if, you know, if, if for instance, a terrorist dropped a bomb on one of our waste storage facilities and then it seeps into the ground the soil it seeps mm-hmm. into the groundwater or into a lake or a stream or an estuary then that would be really bad because then we wouldn't be able to use those resources and there's only so much good arable soil and fresh water sources that we have right now and fresh water mm-hmm. is going to be a big limited resource in the future so those mm-hmm. are some of the most likely worst case things that we should think about in my scenario but mm-hmm. I'd, I'd love to hear your worst case scenario Yeah, so my worst case scenario is about letting these 
letting some countries that maybe don't have as big of a priority of security and um, safety of these nuclear bombs and they, or these nuclear power plants, and they just want to release the energy and they just want to get the energy out there as fast mm -hmm. as possible. So the U.S., France, some of these big developed countries have a lot of safeguards in place. And we spend a lot of money on that. But if countries without as much money still want nuclear power and they, let's say, um, skimp on something like the nuclear waste disposal, mm -hmm. they might throw the barrels full of the nuclear waste into the ocean, which is something that France was doing as recently as the 90s. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's kind of scary to think about what would happen if a lot of developing countries were polluting the environment and not keeping as uh, tight of a safety net on um, right. this nuclear uh, generation. So, yeah, that's that's a big one, especially when you're thinking about countries that don't have as much um, water resources like kind of right. like you were saying it's it's we could have let's say countries in africa that don't have that much water um might dump these barrels into a river so then everybody downstream is affected mm. um, and the pollution is just spreading all around because the nuclear waste is not contained to this one specific area it, it hmm. spreads um well that kind of re that reminds me of a study that i read where they were worried, scientists were worried in the 90s about could you pass on any sort of radiation exposure to the next generation? Like, would it affect your sperm cells, your egg cells, and could that be inherited by the next generation? Thankfully, in this study, they found that no, you cannot pass down any sort of radiation exposure or any sort of mutations to the next generation. So that's that's something that's that's good to note that yeah, it could kill all the people downstream if you dumped pollutants into the water. But, you know, their kids, at least, unless they were drinking the yeah. same water, wouldn't necessarily be exposed. Yeah, I guess the problem would be if the soil was contaminated. Because with, right. with these countries in Africa, especially like along the Nile River, for example, like it's pretty much desert everywhere surrounding these rivers, especially the Nile River. And the only fertile places are right along the river. And if you ruin these fertile places, then there's a lot of downstream effects from mm. that. So a lot of, you know, this is really a worst case scenario where, you know, nuclear waste is not disposed of correctly because peop because countries are just in a hurry to get uh, nuclear power. Right. So, you know, that's, that's, uh, probably my worst case scenario and and then you know one other thing is people just or countries just get so scared that we don't produce nuclear energy at all mm. and we don't we don't pursue it and it's yeah. it's never even you know it's not something in the conversation yeah i mean we talked about it in the future of climate how in just a few decades you can literally die in the summer in new delhi and and some other places just based on how hot it is from global warming, but also from all the particulate pollution. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't want to live in a world where everyone basically needs to have like their own little like terrarium of like 
clean, fresh air that's radiation free and fresh water and soil. And then mm -hmm. anyone who's outside of those bubbles is just pretty much mm -hmm. screwed. So that's something we want to avoid. Um, but fortunately, there's not as big of a risk of that with nuclear as at least I had expected before doing research for this episode. Mm -hmm. So uh, what do you think for the best case scenario? Best case scenario. My best case scenario is a scenario in which we discover the secrets to fusion technology and simultaneously we set up a base on the moon we mine tritium mm -hmm. we are able to take basically seawater and turn that seawater into a barrel of oil worth of energy and maybe we also have desalination at that point so we can basically just use our you know the vast stores of water mm -hmm. in our oceans both as fuel and as fresh water and that would be a clean, free energy source. It would help us to curb climate change. So there would not be nearly as many people dying from uh, particulate matter pollution. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talked about the estimated 1.8 million lives saved from nuclear power, uh, from people not dying from pollution. I could see that number going up to 1.8 billion in the future if we transition to nuclear in the right way. And like you said, if we're if we're smart around where we store the waste and we don't just dump it wherever is convenient, then this is a much smarter move than just releasing all the pollutants into the atmosphere willy nilly. Mm -hmm. So my best case scenario is best for humans and large land animals, first and foremost. But it's also great for Mother Nature because we would be able to have so much clean energy without pollution. And then we can still build all the incredible structures and cities and self-driving this and that without having to mine and destroy all, you know, cut down forests and, and cut out, you know, all the coal yeah. from mountainsides. And a lot of the other energy sources are very damaging to the earth, whereas with nuclear, it's a relatively small area of land that you need and it's relatively clean as far as what waste products it produces yeah i mean my my best case is pretty much the same is that we figure out fusion uh, the super clean energy and just to kind of highlight or describe a world that we, in which we have fusion is just fun because we can so with such energy and such good clean energy we can do things like um, create mega cities in the desert and we like we have so much energy that we don't really need to worry about stuff and we were talking about desalination where right now one of the problems with desalination is that it takes a lot of energy mm -hmm. to desalinate ocean water and if we had fusion you know it might be this this mutually beneficial relationship between desalination and fusion where we can desalinate ocean water to you know use be used in fission but also because fission mm. is such a dense form of energy we can desalinate water for all of these various things like let's say um bringing uh forests to the sahara desert or to you know like 
just getting rid of um, deserts in the sense that like now we have all of this energy that we can use to, I guess, remake Mother Nature kind of however we yeah. want. Like there, there's a lot of things I'm, that we can do with that much energy. Um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I envision the best case just in general of the like future Earth is. Right now, we have so many human beings. Like, if you just look at any city and then you look at, like, the other animals around, it's like, there are so many damn humans around. <laughs> and we're all breathing hot air and lighting things on fire. And and th- that is necessary for us to get to the level of technological uh, progress that we, ha- that we are at right now. Mm-hmm. But I can imagine a future where there's a smaller number of humans... But that we're able to do so much more because we're able to harness energy and knowledge and technology to such a degree that we're basically like the, um, you know, some of the like CIA agents of Mother Earth or I don't know what the right <laughs> analogy could be, but yeah. we're like the, the top agents that kind of go around and do things for Mother Earth. We like fix some of the environment here. We go colonize another like planet over there. We're like doing these mm-hmm. things, but we're not damaging Earth in the process. In fact, we're, we're doing the opposite. We're, we're saving Earth and we're actually... Yeah, um, making it making more it... dense, like more dense with life and more biodiverse. Like there's, there's so much that we can do. And we could even introduce life, if we had that much energy, we could introduce life on Mars maybe, yeah. you know, like terraform Mars. Which Maybe like is the director through. of operations is better than like CIA. Yeah, yeah. You're like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because we might even be able to terraform Mars, create its, you know, magnetosphere that it needs and just totally inhabit our own solar system, you know, on the on the relevant planets. So you think for the most likely scenario, most likely scenario. So in this scenario or in this topic i would actually say that i think the likely closely mimics the best case scenario i think that there's so much financial incentive and social incentive and there's so many incentives to figure out good nuclear power whether that's better versions of fission or better versions or or, um, fusion i think we will achieve these better forms of energy and i think that that's kind of that's one of the the lead dominoes of achieving our our type one civilization status Mm -hmm. where we can you know harness the energy of the sun but really we're you know i guess if it's fusion we're kind of harnessing the energy of a sun but creating our own sun yeah we're we're creating (laughs) our own suns so i think i think what we described in the best case scenario will happen at some point um, and I think it's almost inevitable unless we wipe ourselves out in the process. I, I would agree with you. In the long run, I think we are going to figure these these issues out. Mm-hmm. Uh, to give my most likely in the short run or short to medium run, I would say that we are going to figure out fusion reactors. However, they're not going to be economically viable for the near mm-hmm. for future and possibly even for the mid-future. Mm-hmm. So... I think that, for instance, China and some of these startups in America are going to be able to do it consistently, but it still is going to take more money and energy input than the energy output produces. Yeah, and, and that's how a lot of innovations starts, are anyways. Right. Yeah. So because of that, I think 
in the meantime, while we're making it economically viable, Gen 3 and Gen 4 reactors are going to become more and more widespread in some countries, not all countries. I think this is a very political issue as well. So I think certain countries are just more open to the idea of nuclear power, whereas other countries are not as open to it. So I see a situation where certain countries adopt Gen 3 and Gen 4, and then they're better positioned than the other countries because they have less energy dependence, they have less pollution, and they have lower energy costs. And going into the future, like, you know, we talked about China basically needs a new coal burning power plant every 10 days just to meet their energy demands. This is going to be a huge competitive advantage for those countries. And especially for a country like America, I think that the sooner we can get over our partisan divides and come to at least agree on the facts around nuclear and then decide, okay, what do we actually want to do here? And I think we do need to think a little bit more as a team rather than as like individual little sub teams like for instance the US found that the most the place that makes the most sense to store nuclear waste is the Yucca Mountain in Nevada but then the the Nevada governor you know really got up in arms about this cuz he didn't want it in his backyard you know the not in my backyard phenomenon mm-hmm. and i can obviously i can see that like no state would want it in their own backyard but there needs to be some tough decisions made in this case, and we need to all work together, and we need to make some decisions now around how we want to deal with energy because our consumption is, go- is going up, mm-hmm. and we need to be smart about the trade-offs. It's not just nuclear or no nuclear. It's nuclear or coal, oil, natural gas pollution, and unreliable, less than reliable you know, renewable energy sources. So... Yeah, I think I think the most likely is that nuclear represents a competitive advantage for the countries that implement it and embrace it. With we are all gathered here today to talk about three very important things. We're going to talk about what has happened, what is currently happening, and what will inevitably happen. The past, the present, and the future. Hey Futurists, 
If you've made it this far, you might be wondering who created the Hence the Future theme song. It was created by the Walden Brothers, and you can find them on Spotify. The Walden Brothers also produced the sound bites for the worst case, the best case, and the most likely future scenarios. At Hence the Future, we're always looking for ways to improve the quality of our episodes and our predictions. To that end, we're building a team of researchers to curate the most authoritative and highly vetted sources as the foundation for every episode. If you'd like to support these efforts, you can donate a small monthly amount at anchor.fm slash hence the future. And if you haven't done so already, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support.